0: Equinor's 2018 Energy Perspectives was released the 7th of June. This report covers long-term macro and uh, market outlook and is an important contribution to deeper understanding of the uncertainties and the opportunities in the energy future. I've invited Equinor's chief economist, Eirik Varnes, the main author to my studio, to learn more about these important topics. I'm Hans-Jakob Hegge, the Chief Financial Officer in Equinor, and this is the CFO podcast Behind Our Numbers. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be back in the studio, I guess, because you're full of energy with your new Energy Perspectives report.
1: Yeah, these these types of reports, they energize us. So so it's very good to be back and uh, it's good to have a message to come here and talk about it as well.
0: Great having you. And the eighth edition of your report, what is the Energy Perspectives about?
1: Well, what we try to do is uh, to look at the global energy markets uh, out uh, several decades into the future. Uh, We base it on where we are at the moment in terms of energy demand, uh, the the shares of fuels in in our energy composition. It's a global perspective, so it uh, contains a lot of big numbers. And then we look at how the world could develop, how our energy markets could develop, the demand for oil and gas, new renewables, etc., based on different assumptions of where the world is going. And uh, then we come up with an answer, or at least three different answers for all those variables. Uh, and the uncertainty is big, so the variance in in the re- in the
0: answers is also very very large. What has uh, surprised you the most with this work?
1: Well, if you look at uh, what has changed over the last year since we did since we did a, a last update, or over the last years, what is uh, sort of what are the changes that have been most surprising? I guess uh, it goes both in positive and negative directions. On a positive note, the very rapid changes we've seen in in cost developments for some re- new renewable electricity. Technologies, solar and wind in particular, has been a very nice and positive surprise. Yes. Um, also, the cost reductions that the oil and gas industry has been able to to do, to deliver on over the last years, showing that uh, the the cost levels when the price was a hundred was not a permanent feature. The things that we now do smarter than we did. Where
0: Equinor has been leading the way. And We
1: have been leading the way, and we also have a big responsibility because we're such a big operator. So that that's been that's been very nice. Um, the signals that electrification of, of transport might actually take off uh, on a visible <laughs> trajectory, not only in Norway, but elsewhere, that those, that's also a, definitely a positive signal of where the world might be going. Uh, the, way, the increased willingness to, to, to put some targets behind, put some measures behind targets uh, in the global climate policies, in particular in Asia. Some signals there are also on the positive side. On the other hand, on the negative side, what we see now is that uh, in terms of sustainable development, uh, oil and coal demand uh, are increasing again.
0: Yeah, you know, good for is... part of that
1: is good for short-term business for us. But in terms of global climate uh, challenges and so on, it's it's on the wrong direction. Global CO two emissions are rising again. They were flat globally for three years. Everybody, at least a lot of people, thought that that was a permanent feature now, and it was just a matter of time when they would start to decline. But now they're rising rapidly, and in particular in China at the moment. And, of course, driven by increased fossil fuels um, demand. So, so there are both on the positive and negative side. I think uh, on the political scene, the geopolitical conflicts that we see, the increased tension between the United States uh, on the one hand and other countries on the other, both in terms of pro- trade protectionism, geopolitical conflicts, is a, is a very bad signal for our ability to act together to solve collective challenges. And that's a negative sign, which has worsened. Uh, over the last years after Brexit and after Trump coming into power and so on and sort of reversing part of the positive tendencies we saw after the Paris Agreement.
0: But you described three different scenarios and um, with so much rivalry going on. <clears throat> what do you think is the likelihood of having a renewal scenario taking place?
1: These types of scenario exercises, we do them where we sort of we, we develop some of the assumptions within them to the extreme. And, and, and the consequence of that is that any all of these three scenarios that we have are, on the face of it, in terms of the numbers they provide, very unlikely to happen exactly as they are. They are sort of archetypes of of different possibilities. But that being said, at least at the moment, it's difficult to see that the, the renewal scenario, which is consistent with a with a two degree target of global warming, uh, has a very high likelihood of happening. We think it's possible, but it requires enormous ability to act together and change policies quickly, and then technologies to follow up afterwards. And it has to happen very rapidly. If we wait five to ten years down the road, it's basically impossible to have that combination of economic growth and then the necessary reduction in energy demand that we'll have to follow in order to reach the 2-degree target. So uh, the rivalry scenario has also features that are unlikely to be exactly as they are over such a long period, but but it does contain some very important descriptions of the world that we we're in at the moment with conflicts and difficulties of acting together.
0: How does uh, energy perspectives compare to similar publications uh, in the industry?
1: The, the way the methods we choose are very much the same. If you look at uh, both international organizations like OPEC and IEA and and other institutions in terms of long-term forecasts, the macroeconomic models we use to to, to describe economic growth is much the same. Uh, the assumptions we choose are different and, and uh, what is special about our Perspectives is that uh, we're, we're the only institution that has dared to, or we're the only company that has dared to develop a, a, a conflict-based, geopolitically driven scenario like the rivalry. You don't see that anywhere else. Um, the outcome space that our scenarios provide is sufficiently wide so that we actually cover a lot of the other scenarios that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a couple of a uh, couple of different. Uh, Aspects of our scenarios relative to IEA, for instance, is that we have different economic growth assumptions across scenarios. IEA doesn't have that, they have just different policies. Uh, relative to very many other scenarios uh, that exist out there and that are consistent with different types of climate targets, we have much lower uh, amounts, volumes of carbon capture and storage in our scenarios, even in the renewal scenario.
0: So even if you are a front runner, we don't wholeheartedly believe in it or it is. It is more that it is making slower progress than we need.
1: Well, it's, it's both. It's uh, first of all, we think some of the developments that we see will drive energy efficiency and fuel mix changes more rapidly than others, and then you don't, in a sense, you don't need as much CCS at the end to get the CO2 emissions down. Uh, the progress is too slow, much too slow. Uh, but also, it's such a vast challenge. Uh, I'm not sure that people have reflected over what what does it take to handle. In our case, we have one and a half billion tonnes of co2 taken out in in 2050 by in the renewal scenario, so the remaining 10 percent of the gross emissions will have to be taken out by ccs Mm. to get down well one and a half billion tons of mass weight that's twice the current global production of wheat so it's a massive undertaking under to 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 handle all that those volumes and we have to uh, part of this will have to be captured from thin air and then you have to liquefy it in order to make it handle But it's still such a massive endeavor that, uh, and, and you, it, I mean, it, represent, it represents building uh, one of these facilities that we've tried to, to establish at Mongstad um, roughly once every week from now to 2050. You get to slightly above one and a half billion tons. So it's an enormous challenge. And some of the other scenarios that contain much more CCS, frankly speaking, will have to explain how they think that's going to happen terms of fi- some some of these scenarios have five to seven eight billion tons of CO2 taken out and it's an, it's going to be an enormous industrial
0: endeavor. I guess the big question for many is that uh, how likely is it that we will uh, reach the two degree boundary that we put on ourselves um, because we only have one scenario where it is, which is within the two degree scenario so how likely do you think that we will actually succeed?
1: I, I think it's uh, it's fair to say that it's uh, it's an enormous challenge. Uh, it requires the type of cooperation that we've never seen across uh, businesses and across uh, boundaries, national borders, politicians, and therefore it's not very likely. It's possible, but it's not very likely. Um, on the other hand, I mean, uh, the exact CO2 emission trajectory is one thing to get it down there, and, and, uh, the, and the uncertainties in our models are also both climate models, but also economic models are very large. So we shouldn't despair even if we don't hit exactly that type of emission trajectory. It doesn't say anything specific about the exact temperature by 2100 anyway. No. So, but it's, so it's a very important message here is to avoid having the best, which is the exact emission trajectory, become the enemy of the good. Uh, all the things that we can do that make uh, our use of energy, our supply of energy more efficient, moves the world in the right direction. Lower emissions is better than higher emissions, even if we don't get them as low as we would hope mm-hmm. uh, and and it's instead of quarreling about what type of two degree target two degree scenario you would like let's get started mm. and get the job done and that's that's uh, frankly speaking where where the paris agreement so far has disappointed the most is the is the ability to put measures behind targets that I could actually drive us in the ro- in the right direction the the, the, the adaptation of political measures uh, things like efficiency standards uh, co2 pricing co2 taxes has been much, much too slow, and, and that's where we have to focus. And then adapt to that as industries.
0: And in Equinor, we do this threefold, right? We reduce the emissions on our existing operations by 3 million ton, equivalents of one and a half million cars. We design for low carbon and low cost. Uh, and our next generation portfolio is at 3 kilo CO2 per barrel with a breakeven of 21 in average. And we invest more in renewables. Um, how do you market uh, Equinor's examples, and and what kind of feedback do you get when presenting the scenarios and what we do as a company?
1: Well, I think I think out uh, out there, and in particular outside of Norway, I should say, there is a, there is a very strong recognition that we are a frontrunner. Uh, we have a very good reputation. Uh, we are very believable when when we communicate that there's a there's a need to invest in new oil and gas to satisfy demand even if that demand is going to at some point start declining um, we are recognized as a very energy efficient and prudent operator uh, uh, We I, I I hear that they believe us when we say we wish for a higher and a global carbon price uh, and I think we are proving now through examples that we're also willing to invest in, in new renewable electricity with the challenge that that we see there as well.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, on the home arena, I think we I think we have a slightly longer way to go. And there's something about the, the Norwegian setting where we're on the, on the one hand we're we're a, we're an extremely energy dependent economy, also as an energy exporter. But at the same time, we want to be best in class in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of uh, dimensions, and we want to solve these problems at home. And we tend to forget that, in particular on the on the climate arena, what we do in Norway frankly speaking doesn't matter a lot we can develop technology here but it's but it's when we deploy that technology to larger emission sources or to different countries or to different uses that's when when it might have an impact
0: while you are in the studio Eric I just want to point you to the macro uh, environment as well and um, we have seen the oil and gas prices move uh, upwards uh, particularly the oil price up to twice above 80 around 75 at the moment what are the main moving parts?
1: Well, on the oil price side, uh, fortunately, the price has come up, as uh, some of us predicted a couple of years back that it would have to would go up. Uh, it's come a bit higher than fundamentals in isolation indicate, and one of the reasons is that uh, there's a lot of geopolitical concern out there. Uh, once the sort of the storage levels were drawn down, so we have normal storage levels, everybody realizes that there's a le- relatively low spare capacity, spare production capacity in the world. Then you get issues like Venezuela's production falling. Uh, you have we've had we had the normal supply disruptions, whether it's Libya or Nigeria, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, that drives price up, and in particular in the par- uh, in the paper markets. Mm-hmm. So look, going forward, um, there's a I mean there there's this balance between what's going to be the impact of the lower investments for a period on new supply capacity. We still see new fields coming online, which were decided before the price crashed. Uh, uh, you have that balance. On the other hand, you also have the shale oil production. How much is it going to go up if the price continues to rise? Yes. And, and uh, with that balance, the current price level is re- is relatively reasonable in terms of what what you should expect long term. Uh, costs will come up a bit. But on the other hand, the current situation with that high extra geopolitical premium is not normal. So you'll see a balance in between those. And then the, pr- the ultimate price level might actually be relatively comparable to what we see today. But it's going to surprise us, both on the upside and the downside.
0: Thank you, Eric. Uh, just to the very end, what what is the most fun thing about being the chief economist? It's to be
1: getting the chance to speak in front of a microphone.
0: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming and thank you to all the listeners. Thank you.